some of the best minds of my generation, destroyed by madness, starving, hysterical, naked, dragging themselves through the Negro streets at dawn, looking for an angry fix, angel-headed hipsters, burning for the ancient heavenly connection to the starry dynamo in the machinery of night. Hi. I'm David Hershkovitz, and welcome to episode two of Beginnings, a podcast brought to you by HAL. HAL is the not-for-profit arts organization dedicated to preserving the history and telling the stories of New York's downtown creative community. Today's guest is Michael Holman, an originator and promoter of downtown culture since arriving on the scene in the mid-70s. Armed with a degree in economics, he moved to New York from San Francisco, worked on Wall Street by day, and partied at night on the art and music scene with OGs like Fab Five Freddy and Jean-Michel Basquiat. Holman's achievements include founding the band Gray with Basquiat and was the first person to formulate a hip-hop-oriented TV show. Today he continues to create culture and explore the intersection where film, music, dance, and theater meet and cross over. We talk with Holman about God, a.k.a. the good old days in New York, and reminisce about the genius that was the downtown scene. Oh, I like that. Yeah, good old days. Okay, thank you. Tell not to be afraid of the microphone. I remember, yeah. Okay. We're doing a podcast. Yeah, okay. So, um, just, um, I know, you know, we picked up the story, you're in New York, you're doing all these amazing things, but can you just maybe fill us in a little bit on life before New York and how, you're not a native New Yorker, I take it, right? No. Yeah, I mean, and it kind of plays into my journey here. Um, I came from California, came from San Francisco in, in 78, uh, right out of school, finished school at USF. I didn't know what I was going to do, you know. I was I had a degree in economics, and I, the first job I got here was as a, uh, uh, a junior banker, Wall Street banker. Typecast, believe it or yeah. Not. Yeah. Um, but what's interesting about my, my time in California, where I was born, but I lived a lot of my life as an Army brat overseas, but uh, during the time I was in school in University of San Francisco, I also joined... Uh, this art rock band, some of you may know, The Tubes, theatrical rock group, white punks on dope. And uh, that was, you know, really, that, that, that uh, experience in The Tubes where, you know, it, it was a lot like, you know, running away and joining the it was circus. like a performance band, right? Did you wear costumes and wore, like... Every outrageous? song was a production. Every song had a dance number, had costumes, had a theme... And so, you know, we were busy, and it was like a circus, and, and, you know, everybody had to either make a costume or props or be a part of the, sh- of the, of the, of the number on stage or behind stage, and it was my baptism into show business, really, into theatrical, into theatrics. How did you, why did you get involved with it in the first place, given your, you know, economic and... I was, I was a really good dancer, you know, and I was at a club uh, uh, called the, the Cabaret, and Michael Cotton, who was in the tubes at the time, saw me and said, hey, you know, we need a whole bunch of people on stage for our encore number, White Punks on Dope, you know, which has a cast of thousands, 
And I was like, yeah, sure, you know. I mean, like any, any college kid, you're ready to do anything anybody wants you to do. That sounds out of the ordinary and something exciting. And so I did, and I ended up joining the band for a year, dropping out of school, and going on a world tour, which was only in the United States. <laughs> um, and, uh, but that was my big taste of, you know, wow, you can actually create um, any kind of visual or any kind of staging that, that comes to mind if you have enough people who are willing to, you know, put in the time and the effort and who are also equally enthusiastic. And, and it was that time, and we were all young, and, and it was just the best, like I said, baptism into the idea of the creative process. And, and then when you came to New York, what, you know, did you know anyone, or how did you connect with the community? What, what happened? Well, I did. I knew someone, a guy named Stan Peskett, who had a, 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 a loft on Canal Street, and he was, was one of those, one of a thousand characters on, uh, on stage during White Punks on Dope with the Tubes back in California. So when I came to New York, he was like one of the few people I actually knew uh, in New York. He was uh, uh, English expat, went to school with David Hockney at the Royal College. Uh, you know, he was older than me. But I would hang out with him. You know, during the week, I, I worked at, on Wall Street with, at Chemical Bank. And on the weekends, I'd hang out with Stan at his loft, and we'd smoke joints and, and talk about crazy ideas and make art. And I would basically kind of be his studio assistant and help him out with ideas. And one day, um, I remember looking at a little blurb in the, in the Village Voice about this uh, graffiti crew called the Fabulous Five. And a lot of you may know, you know, these graffiti groups would would be made, made up of a number of, of writers, a number of artists. They'd give themselves a name, and they would work you know, in collaboration with each other and do giant projects. And, and this blurb that was being interviewed by a guy named Fab Five Freddy, who was their kind of media uh, um, uh, middleman or you know, liaison. And he basically was saying this little blurb that, you know, if, you, if you're, and this is like 78, late 78, if your company or if, you're, if you at your own home, you want a uh, graffiti burner or a piece done in your place of business or your home, just, you know, give us a call. And his number was there. And thinking back now, this is 78, that was rather prescient and rather ahead because it, was, it would have been many years later before graffiti art would be seen even in galleries, leastwise people commissioning people to do it in their businesses mm-hmm. or homes. But anyway, I called him up. Invited him over now with Stan and Freddie and I hanging out, smoking joints on the weekends and talking ideas. And we came up with this idea to have a party for the Fabulous Five at the loft. And we called it the, the Canal Zone Party. And really, it was the first time that I know of that the downtown fine art scene uh, rubbed shoulders with uptown and Brooklyn hip hop, what would be later on called hip hop scene which, as you know, was a crucial um, phenomenon within you know, the hip-hop evolution, which was hip-hop coming downtown. Definitely. And this really was, April 29th, 1979, was the first time that those two parties, those two forces came together. But it was also really important for me because it was the, the night that I met Jean-Michel Basquiat. And it was kind of an interesting story because he showed up at the beginning when we're setting up all the work for the, of the Fabulous Fives graffiti. Lee Kiones, 
this giant Frankenstein uh, portrait is his. He was the real star of the Fabulous Five. Um, this young, young black kid, tall, beautiful, crazy haircut, shows up and says, I want to be down too. I want to do something too. We didn't know who he was, and we're like, okay, whatever. He was so charming and so insistent that Stan and I put up a big piece of gray photo paper and this kid started writing which of the following symbols are omnipresent. A, Lee Harvey Oswald. B, General Mallory. C, Coca-Cola logo. D, Samo. And we were like, oh, wow, you're Samo. is Jean-Michel Basquiat. And I remember interviewing him that night because I was the guy interviewing everybody at that party. And I think I was, looking back, I was unconsciously or subconsciously jealous because everyone else was doing something and I was just interviewing them. So I think there was this like hostility coming out of me. And so when I was interviewing people, I would ask them a question and put the microphone in their face. And then before they could answer, I'd ask another question. I'd put the microphone in their face. Before they, and so I was doing this kind of as a goof. It was really stupid. And I did it. Finally, Jean-Michel, he's like, I want to be interviewed too. Because he was so, he knew. Like, I have to be at the right parties. I have to do the right things. I have to be on film. I have to be part of whatever. You know, he was calculated. He understood better than any of us and all of us, like what it took to become successful. So he was like, well, when am I going to be interviewed? So I'm finally interviewing him, and I'm doing the same kind of stupid thing, asking him a question and pulling away. And, and all of a sudden, when he realized I wasn't going to let him answer a question, he just, his face just turned to stone. All expression drained out of his face, all judgment, all thought. And I realized I was looking in a mirror at myself, acting like a fool, and I started stuttering and called it off. Five minutes later, I went up to him off camera, and I said, sorry about that, man. And he goes, that's all right, man. You want to start a band? And I was like, yeah, yeah. And we started Gray that night. Wow. That's, uh, there's a lot there to Crazy think about. Crazy story. Um, but uh, just for my own reasons that I'm curious about, like why... Did you come to New York originally, just stepping back a second? Because everyone, you know, it was the most dangerous place in the country. The city was burning down. It was just not attractive in that respect. So what, what made you come? A couple of specific things. The general thing, why we all come, you know, we just don't feel comfortable where, you know, we are. We belong somewhere else. We belong in the thick of the bohemian experience. That was the main reason. But some specific things... And I know you all had the same experience for the most part, but uh, I came to New York maybe around 74 uh, on a trip east to visit my cousins who live you know, in D.C. And a couple of my cousins and a friend of theirs who lived in, in, in upstate New York, we all got in my Volkswagen from San Francisco and drove up and came to New York. And we just went wild. And we went to Les Jardins uh, when, when Les Jardins was happening. Uh, we went to um, all kinds of crazy things. One thing that we did was really special was we went to this outdoor Sunday afternoon jams that used to happen at the Bethesda Fountain in the 70s. I, some of you may know about this. Leonard, did you, did you ever experience this? It was in the lawless New York. The police didn't bother anybody. There was no money to pay the police. There was no money to do anything really. Mm -hmm. So like Berlin sort of tried to be in, in the 90s, New York was like, we did whatever we wanted. It was total freedom. This is before I moved here. And I'm like seeing this city. It's like 
wow, it's like a theme park for like hipsters or something. Like, what a crazy place. So, so <laughs> Bethesda Fountain, Sunday afternoon, this would be this. I'll paint the scene for you. And I'm just this California kid. I don't know. There's about three or 400 people, for the most part black and Puerto Rican, white kids too, all dressed disco fresh. Like, uh, um, this would have been thrift shop gear, like, like uh, uh, 30s, 40s peg leg pants, marshmallow shoes. Remember those with the white soles? Uh, tight pajama tops, applejack caps with like, you know, the big uh, roadster caps or gangster caps. The women wearing like uh, Betty Day, uh, uh, Bette Midler, early Bette Midler, like 40s summer dresses, platform shoes, uh, eyebrows penciled in like this, you know, with like this thin little eyebrow. I mean, that was what it, wearing that Rosie the Riveter like hairdos and, and doing the Latin hustle with 50 boom boxes all along the hills around the Bethesda Fountain, all tuned into WBLS, Frankie Crocker, playing like disco on a Sunday afternoon. 50 radios is the sound system. Kunga players, kids all doing like the, uh, uh, we, we, LA hustle is actually called the bus stop in New York, those formation dances. Everyone's moving in a formation. Um, just, I mean, imagine coming from California and you're seeing the scene and it's like, it's like theater. And I think at that moment, I must have known that I would come back. Mm. Then a year or so later, I came back with the tubes. Uh-huh. And now I'm with the tubes, and I'm going out to, 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 to David's Loft and Studio. Well, not Studio. It wasn't open yet. But David's Loft, the Blue, the Blue, Blue Angel, the Hollywood, uh, Barney Googles, all the dope, and Blaise Jardin, all the dope disco clubs. And... After that, it was like, you know, you can't go back to the farm after that. <laughs> yeah, it's really. like over, you know. Well, I had to, I, I just couldn't wait to get back to California to finish. I had a year left of school and graduate and move back to New York for the rest of my life. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, one thing that I, I find, um, you know, that we can talk about perhaps if you agree with what I'm going to say. Uh-oh which is that it seems to me that you were perhaps the first, or, you know, it's always hard to identify who's first and who's not exactly first, but who recognized hip-hop. I, I know you gave the, the name hip-hop, which maybe you can no, talk No, no, I didn't, I didn't oh, name no. the name. I, I was the first person to use it in, in print. Oh, okay. In a publication. So the, so Leonard Abrams, East Village Eye. Leonard's right there. You can raise your, yeah. So uh, my question is, so, but you saw that this culture was uh, some, like media, like it was something that could be experienced and spread beyond the communities. And with your TV show and even with your breakdance, uh, New York Breakers, um, you know, managing them, you know, trying to take them. In a, to I a created that crew, actually. Yeah. So, you know, maybe you could talk a little bit about that. Like what the idea, you know, how did you come up or think about this idea that this, like this indigenous community uh, that had evolved this particular culture and art form, that that could suddenly be taken to Kansas or wherever outside of of the neighborhood into the rest of the country or the world even as today. Well, you know, of course, as most of you know, there's a lot of people before me who were on the same track. And I think of uh, Henry Chalfant 
as really kind of ground zero in terms of saying, hey, you know, I want to share this world that I'm, I'm, I'm sort of exploring when he made uh, uh, Style Wars and when he would bring artists downtown. Fat Five Freddy is, is also a, a, a crucial name in terms of being a, a liaison between those two cultures. Marty Abram, uh, 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 Marty Cooper, Martha Cooper, the photographer, really the first hip-hop journalist. Um, you know, I, th these are people who were doing it before me, really, and turned me on to the idea. But, but yeah, I, I think my, my own twist on it, where, like, and, and Charlie Ahern, <clears throat> you know, Charlie was doing a feature film. Henry Chalfant was doing documentaries on, and really focused on graffiti. Um, Mar Marty was photographing everything. Um, Fat Five Freddy was like, you know, bringing these artists down, you know, the mug club and whatever. Uh, my whole thing, I think my main focus would have been the dance and the idea of, of celebrating b-boying and breakdancing, but then the, the whole culture and get like you're saying, um, exploring it in media and, and television. And, and before I did Graffiti Rock, which aired in, 80, in 84, 88 markets around the country, really great Nielsen ratings, et cetera, et cetera. But before I did that in 82 and 83, I was doing like a, a public access hip hop shows even before that. Right, what was it called? The, the <coughs> I had one called um, On Beat TV, and I had one called TV New York. Uh, I had a third one, I forget. But, you know, it's like public access. Anyone's ever, you know, like, 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 like TV Glenn's party. show. Yeah. Um, Glenn was, was much more uh, disciplined and he had this great thing that went on for years. When I did my first public access shows and I realized that I couldn't advertise and there was no way to raise money to pay for the show, I got really bored with it really quickly. But I did do about four or five, you know, public access hip-hop shows from 82 to 83. So what was the experience like when you had your show in all these markets and when, you know, trying to take it from there to the next level? What, you know, what were the, the rock, Yeah, mean. what were the reactions from, you know, was MTV already had started at that no. point? No. Oh, well, yeah, yeah, no, MTV was opened up in, I think, 80 or 81. Yeah, yeah MTV already existed, but if you recall... Uh, a, a dark past to MTV. I mean, they were... I, I still don't forgive them. I mean, they made a, made a big deal until I think they played <coughs> um, Michael Jackson's video. Mm -hmm. For years, they were like, oh, we reserve the right to only play white rock uh, videos. We are not playing any black artists, no hip-hop, none of that. So you have to understand, the first three years of, of MTV was... All white people, all white music. All, I mean, I don't think you can have such a thing as white music, but all white people, all music performed by white artists. It, it was awkward and embarrassing and really weird in the beginning. And that was while all this music was coming up and everybody was getting excited, like yeah, with the, the, all the new stuff, right? The hip hop exactly. influenced and yeah, exactly. I mean, but but uh, but but back to graffiti rock. It only the only the pilot aired. I, it never oh, really? went to a, no. uh, a a series because, you know, you have to take it and sell it at NAPTI, you know, at these national, right. you know, the mar uh, things where you take anything, you know, yeah. like a convention. And um, 
we couldn't <coughs> sorry we couldn't sell the show ultimately because um, you know a lot of the station managers who buy this programming thought well we already have Soul Train we don't need another you know uh, uh, what is this hip hop believe me almost to a man all the station managers who were white middle aged men were saying um, this rap thing this is in 84 rap is a passing fad it's never going to last and it's like oh man uh, and finally we were going to get it on the air but then we would have had to have gotten in bed with literally with the mafia <laughs> in New York they controlled one of the TV stations that agreed to air it with $10,000 under the table and I was like great fine <laughs> you know I mean that's how Mud Club that's how all the clubs operated that's how everything operated all the labels everything in New York back in the day operated you had to get in bed with the mob right and I was like I get that but my backers, my executive producers were like, we're not doing that. We're not going to wake up in East Village with a cement suit for some reason just because you want to have your TV show in the air. And I was like, damn. Damn. <laughs> Gee, so, uh, tell me, I, I am like, I do feel like I have to ask about Jean-Michel's haircut. Oh, like, yeah. <laughs> that, you know, there's a photo up there. But how, what was that? You know, is there any did anyone ever say anything to him about, like, what are you doing to your hair? Well, the, like, funniest, what is... the funniest story I ever heard uh, that, that, I mean, he didn't tell me this, but I remember the haircut. Someone else told me years later that he had this one haircut, and I remember this is the haircut he had in, that you see my films of him walking around. Like, if you looked at he said, yeah, this is a haircut to where I walk in for a job interview, and I have this normal haircut, <clears throat> and then, because I'm so charming and smart, you give me the job. But then when I walk out, I've got all these dreads coming out of the back. And then you realize, damn, I gave this guy the job. Why did I do it? It was like this joke. That he, you know, he, he had such the, the funniest sense of humor, man. It's just like, so, so he had this weird haircut that, but he had a number of, like this one, he's completely bald. And then he has dreads coming out of the back. Another one, when I first met him, it was blonde with like a widow's peak. And then he had... Yeah, it, that one. I was, he, he was with Jennifer Stein when, when they were going out together making the baseball cards, and they were on a train going somewhere in Long Island, and he's shaving to meet her parents or something. Right? He's shaving, <laughs> shaving his head into the widow peak on the train, and he says to Jennifer, how come everyone's looking at me, man? What's their problem? You know? <laughs> it's so funny. Tell me a little bit about the process of making music. How, how did that work. It was great. I mean, you know, again, you, if you were a musician, you couldn't be in the band. I mean, we didn't want that kind of baggage. We wanted, we wanted people who approached music like sculptors, you know, audio sculptors or, 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 or you know, painters, you know, like what was your painterly approach to sound? And, you know, it was like a John Cajun type thing or Stockhausen, Stockhausen, or or even This Heat. Anyone remember? Know This Heat? This English band called This Heat. They were amazing. Um, <clears throat> that was This Heat playing when Cody Mon Cody Money's running around trying to find to to bills to change with his money. Anyway, give you an idea. I can remember a time when we were rehearsing up on Ninety Second Street, and um, Jean's sitting on the floor, and he's plucking his guitar with a metal file and the strings are real loose and, and, 
and it's making these really strange pling, 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 and I'm doing something on the drums, and I remember <coughs> um, him, I did something, and he looked up at me with this pained look on his face, and I instantly, like, you know, redirected my drumming to another place, and I just remember that, that you know, we oftentimes, I mean, it was a democratic thing, we wrote all of our own pieces, we wrote all of our own parts to each song. Sometimes they would start with a drum beat. <coughs> Sometimes they would start with a different sound. But in the end of the day, Basquiat was the, the, the last word, if there had to be a last word. And if you did something like I did with the drums, and he looked up at me from the floor with this kind of pained look, it was like he didn't have to say anything you know, it was, it was like he was an arbiter of style and sound and beauty. And his, he was so, and many of you in this room knew him as, as well as I did. He, he was so sensitive to something being tired or boring or not cool. And he, he just, just a look on his face was enough for you to like kind of come up with something different or try something different or new. And so, in a way, he was an arbiter in the band to, to, to kind of, like, keep us in the cool vein, I suppose. <coughs> um, we, were, we were, so there was that one thing. Then the other thing is we would always try to impress each other with something new and different. I remember, at one, I mean, this is, I'm not proud of this, but I remember, and this all happened to all of us, almost, except for Jean, you know, where I could feel like, I wasn't pushing the envelope and that my place in the band, even though I founded the band with Jean, was in jeopardy. And I felt like, shit, man, I can't, because we threw one guy out of the band because he wasn't, he was holding us back in a way. And I was like, shit, man, that can't happen to me. <coughs> and I remember going away, probably a couple of joints and acid later or whatever, coming back with this idea of of miking the, 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 the surface of the drum and having the mic go through like a reverbed amp or something. And, and, and I think you saw some of these things like just doing strange things like pulling masking tape off the drum or pick up sticks on the drum. Or, and <clears throat> when I did that, that kind of, for all of us, it kind of opened up things. Okay, let's, it, it, everybody found new ways to play with things instead of playing in this bombastic way. We started, we started experimenting even more. Like Jean started playing the guitar with a metal file, and, and um, uh, uh, it, it, our approach became more like what you've started to hear in a lot of these films. Um, this, this just, you know, experimental, avant-garde, really just looking. I, and, and one last thing looking for something new and different that we haven't heard before that was really crucial playing our instruments as if we were aliens from another planet and have no idea how to play a drum so I might as well pull masking tape off of it or something and most importantly for Gray for us and we still perform Nick Taylor and I still perform is we would listen really really hard because we didn't know how to play instruments so our way of dealing with that was just listening really hard to what everyone else in the band was doing and finding your place in that space. 
listening for empty space, finding ways to complement what someone just did. Uh, it was really all about like this, this, this love and, and generosity and, and, and patience with each other. But did you listen to other music together? <laughs> did you have similar influences in not just in music, but in art or film or... Yeah, oh, uh, wow. I mean, God. Well, you know, I mean, that was back when, when as you guys, somebody applauded for the, the St. Mark's Theater. I mean, that was a time when the best movies would be playing, projected in a movie theater. You know, like, in how many theaters were there in New York in, in the early 80s? Like, maybe eight or nine, ten theaters, like, from the Thalia all the way uptown to, to you know, to uh, the Quad, to St. Mark's, to wherever. You know, you'd be able to see Boy and His Dog or Dog Day Afternoon or whatever. Films that were maybe only two or three or five years old, but you just didn't catch them. And the, the taste of the, the theater owners was so good. I mean, I don't know who these people were, but they would play these films that, that and we would all go. You'd go together. We it's all like went together to see. Who the films. band would go? Or just some... <laughs> yeah. Some, I, I remember seeing, sometimes as a band, but sometimes like Jean and I, or me and Nick, or whatever, or, 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 uh, Vince and I would go. Jean and I went to see uh, Boy and His Dog with... with uh, Don Johnson. Don Johnson. <laughs> My hero, yeah. The Stanislaw Lem <laughs> story uh, about the world underground with Jason Robards and Oh, what a I great see, yeah. film. But, I mean, it was these... I mean, and all the great films of the 70s um, from, El, you know, from Hollywood, you know, all the, the Hal Ashby films and, the, and the, you know, the early Coppola films and blah, blah, blah. I mean, you know, that was what was... You know, to see those in theaters, you know, so we, it, we were so spoiled. Uh, dancing, we went out dancing, as you know, every night to the Mud Club. You know, 365 days in the year, we probably went out 350 of them, dancing till four in the morning, then save the robots after and whatever. We danced together, we saw movies together, we we oftentimes made art together, made films together, as you as you saw. So it was, and 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 and. I, I have to give, I mean, we were all doing our own thing, but I have to give a lot of credit to Basquiat in that, in that style that, 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 that be, that's so strong in his paintings today that you see in his paintings today. We would look for that voice, that style we called ignorant. Like, it's, it's so, it's like wrong. It's not supposed to work, but it so works so well. I mean, and I think the jazz guys in the 40s and 50s used that, Slang, ignorant. Oh, that's so ignorant. It's like it's like it's like in the seventies and the sixties. Like so remember? stupid. Remember? Or bad. Remember? It's or like bad. oh, it's bad. James Brown is bad. It meant it was so bad. It was good. It was so. Ugh. And ignorant was that style. Like we had to find a way to make music, and <coughs> dress, and speak, and act, and dance, and all that in this ignorant style as much as mm. we could. Well, a flash forward to today when that era, you know, is kind of branded now and Jean-Michel is branded as $100 million paintings. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, <laughs> that's a good thing, Patrick. Yeah. The art dealer in the house likes that. <laughs> Patrick Fox in the house from back in the day. 
So, I mean, but how does that, you know, do you respond to that? Do you have a reaction to, you know, the New York Times did that whole issue about 80, 81 as sort of <coughs> like this golden age of, right. you know, like Paris in the 20s, New York in the early 80s. Does that resonate for you? Yeah. I mean, and it's part of the luck and the timing of me moving here and all of us moving here at that time and, and, and just falling into something as powerful and meaningful, and I think people will realize that more and more in the future, as Paris in the 20s mm. or London in the 60s. I mean, you know, we, we had just as much, just we were, we were changing things and, and changing the world and turning the world on and turning the world out as much as, you know, Picasso and, and Satie and everyone did in the, you know, and all the Baroque and Cubists and everyone did in, the, in, in Paris and with music and dance and everything else and film. <coughs> Sorry. Um, you know, Buñuel and everything. I mean, you know, we did our own thing and I think we were just as potent. A, a cre and, and as far as anybody, you know, hating on the idea of Basquiat, I mean, I, I read so many crazy things about like, Oh, it shouldn't be so expensive, and it, you know, pff, fuck that, man. I mean, you know, I love the idea of Jean-Michel Basquiat being what a record holding, you know, the most expensive American artist in auction, and and the fact that he came from our school and our posse. I mean, I'm proud as as I could ever possibly be. I mean, the, and and the idea that that something, you know, with, with fifty dollars worth of of stretcher and canvas and paint, you know, Jane Dixon's great work here. Um, uh, you know, whether it's 50 bucks or 100 bucks, whatever it is, or 10 bucks, a, a door you found in the garbage and you threw some paint on it, and, and 50 years later, 10 years later, it's worth $50 million or $10 million, great. I mean, thank God we live in a world where art has so much value, it could so easily not be worth anything. We live in a world where where the most innocuous combination of elements are, are worth a small country's D, you know, GDP. I think that's great. That's, <laughs> that speaks to the, to the creative powers of the humans. I, I think that's wonderful. Yeah. Um, one thing that uh, <laughs> I'm spending a lot of time thinking about those days as well and uh, one thing that I've come to uh, realize and understand is that this was like a, you know, like a group of very disenfranchised artists, gays, women, people with essentially no power in the, in the world um, who were ultimately become the winners of, of all the culture today. A lot of the issues that are still <laughs> resonating today all, all began around that time. Yeah, we won. We yeah. won. <laughs> All sort of. We're winning. <laughs> the war goes on. Let's the war goes on, yeah. Um, any, perhaps some questions from the house at this point? Take a minute, think about it. I'd like to say one thing about yeah. what you, on the tail of what you just said. There was, talking about the New York Times, there's a great story in the Times about storytellers and these anthropologists had gone to the Philippines, and this was recent, this was uh, just last year, where there's a tribe of people, uh, not South America, but in the Philippines, I think they're called the Negritos, but they have another name. 
And they, uh, more than any other people in the world, are similar to uh, pre, uh, you know, prehistoric, primordial life, human, you know, like 100,000 years ago. These people live that way and continue to live that way and want to live that way, okay? So they're living very primitive hunter-gatherers today. And when, what they discovered that was so fascinating was that all the roles of different people that have different roles in this community that we've all come from at some point or another in our, human, in our DNA, there are different people. There were hunters, there were gatherers, there were midwives, there were warriors, there were uh, chiefs, there were leaders, there were cooks, there were all kinds of people that had different roles. There were healers, there were, there were shaman. But the one role that was most taken care of by the tribe, the one person in the tribe who had it best, who was fed, who was, who was, who was healthiest, who lived longest, it wasn't the doctor or the healer. It wasn't the warrior. It wasn't the hunter who brought the food. It was the storytellers. The entertainers were the ones that people would want to come and live. Come and stay the night at my home. Mm-hmm. Come and, oh, you're going to speak around the campfire tonight. I'll make sure I'm there. They were the Mick Jaggers. They were the Jean-Michel's, Jean-Michel Basquiat. I mean, we naturally, as as ancient and as contemporary beings flock to and love and lionize and care for the people who, not who, who heal us and not who feed us, but who entertain us, who inspire us. And I think that that's who we are. I think that's the artist. And I think that's why we're here, suffering through all this, because we want to touch a little bit of that well, light. We want to see how the story plays out. We want to be, watch it happen. And, and it says something about the role of story in evolution, too. Yeah. Well, that's our story for tonight. Thank you all for coming. Thanks. Thank you. Thank you, Michael Holman. Thank you. The producers would like to thank Johnny Dinell for the intro music and all of his good vibes.